Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology. In this podcast, we discuss how data is creating our future. Specifically, we cover applications of analytics, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. We discuss career tips for data scientists on how to lead and create value from data. And also, what are the current and future challenges in data science? In this podcast, we interview current leaders in the data space, such as heads of and directors of data science and data engineering, chief data scientists and chief data officers to find out straight from them what were the lessons they've learned in their careers which have helped them get to where they are today. My name is Felipe Flores and I have over 15 years experience in the data space where I've worked on everything from data warehousing to reporting and business intelligence to machine learning and artificial intelligence. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, this is Felipe, and this is a different type of episode. Just like in episode eight, it was a presentation that I did about agile data science. This episode is also a presentation that I did recently to a large financial institution, and it's on five lessons that I learned in building a data science team in a large institution. And specifically, we in my old data science team, we were using the cloud. That was an important component for this presentation as well. So some of the things that we talk about is using lessons from the lean startup and design thinking, bringing that into the data science work. We talk about the importance of staying close to the end customer. We focus on how data scientists are seen or can be seen in organizations and some of the behaviors that we might have with the best intention, but that can lead to people having a bit of resistance to either our work or working with us. We talk about how to best use their data assets in your organization and how you can bring in data from unexpected places. And at the end, we cover about using the flexibility of the tools that you have in the best way. I hope that you enjoy it. In the show notes, I'll also put some links to the questions or answers to some questions that I got as part of the presentation just after. The audio wasn't good enough to capture the, the questions, so I'll, I'll put a short description about them. In the show notes, I'll also put the presentation there, and you can find the show notes at datafuturology.com forward slash podcast forward slash 24. Thanks a lot, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Great. Hey, hey everyone. Thanks so much for sticking around. You know, it's almost four o'clock. It's a public holiday tomorrow, but we'll make this as painless and quick as possible. So thanks a lot. Look, before I get into this, I got to tell you, like less than two weeks ago, I go back from a long honeymoon overseas where uh, we spend most of the time in Europe and obviously fantastic. We avoided the Melbourne winter, etc. So before we jump into the topic, I've got about 20 minutes worth of pictures that I wanted to share with you guys. No, obviously, obviously kidding. Uh, but it was definitely a shock to come back thinking that it was going to be nice and warm in Melbourne. And obviously, Melbourne always wants to take you in the gut. So as Bryn mentioned, I was uh, actually, that's sort of the next slide. This is me, very quickly, started my own analytics consulting business, did that for five years, grew to 50 people, sold my part. Then I went into ANZ, and I started the data science team in the institutional division. And for ANZ, at least the institutional side is the biggest division in terms of revenue, it brings in about 50% of the revenue for the group. And they had no data science team, which in less than four years, we went from zero or just me to 50 people. So that was pretty good. And then I left to do this honeymoon. And before we left, my wife had this idea. I told her, I was like, you know what? I think I'm gonna get bored. 
as we travel. And she's like, don't be silly. Like, we'll be together. We'll see the cultures. We'll see the sights. And I was like, yeah, no, I think I'm going to get bored. She's like, ah, you're a bastard first. But then she was like, well, why don't you start to interview people in your field, have interesting conversations, and put those out as a podcast. So I started doing that as we traveled. But I'll tell you a little bit more at the, at the end. So this is, as per the title, these are the mistakes and lessons learned. Uh, mistakes, mostly, or honestly, all of them. Mistakes that I made as I was building this team, trying to get us on the cloud, uh, getting the division to use data science, uh, trying to teach people like what this is and what it could do for them. It was four years or just under, and it literally, like looking back and definitely at the time, it felt like mistake, 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 mistake. So. I'm happy to be able to share some of those and hopefully uh, you find them useful in your own work. One of the first things that we had to do is maximize learning and speed to learning. And the, the cliche at the moment is the companies that learn the fastest are the ones that are winning and going to win. And what I found is that a lot of executives take that and they go, great, so you have to fail fast. And then that's all they repeat. They go, you fail fast, you fail fast, you fail fast. You know, it's like a game show. Everyone fails fast. What does that mean? Does that mean that we're aimlessly trying stuff and the more I fail, the better my performance review is going to be? I hate it. I honestly hate it when people go, just fail fast. It'll be great. No, no, it won't. <laughs> like, what are you trying to do? So when I started at ANZ at this division, like trying to get data science in, trying to get cloud in, we built lots and lots of prototypes. It was just me. I got a couple consultants in. I saw the idea of we're going to fail fast. Heaps of prototypes. In less than six months, we did like 60 little prototypes. And I was like, we're failing fast, killing it, right? It was just like taking stabs in the dark. And we did find some things that worked. The traction that we got was kind of mild traction, but we were failing fast. And I felt that at the end of those like six months that we were trying that, I was pretty frustrated because we weren't making progress. And then what we started to do is major change besides the validated learning was this follow the money. Sounds pretty cool. It's like money. I like money. You like money. We follow the money. But what does that mean? In this division that I was in, it was what are the most profitable products? And what is the strategy say that they want to do with those most profitable products? So A, they want to cross sell more to existing customers. They want to expand to new geographies, new client acquisition. What does that say? What does the strategy say about where we make most of our money? And then it was like, great, let's jump in that pool. That's where we're going to add a lot of value and make a difference. So that was the first change. And then we went into this build, measure, learn loop, which comes from the lean startup, uh, obviously very closely tied to agile methodology. And a lot of people say, yeah, you just have to go through the loop, right? You build something, you see how it's working. You learn something, you improve, have new ideas. What I think not, not enough people discuss, in my opinion, is that the way you execute the cycle is build, measure, learn. But the way you design your experiments, the way you, that you design what you're going to do is the other way around. So you first go, what am I going to learn? How can I measure that? And what do I need to build to find out what I want to find out? So the design is the other way around. So what I mean by that, if we start by following the money, we say, these products are very profitable. Great. Then what's a, what's a hypothesis that usually you want somebody sort of important in the organization? What is a hypothesis that somebody important has about this product that's very profitable? Because we're following the money. 
And then they say, well, I think that Thailand's gonna be great for this product. And you go, great, that's what we want to learn. We wanna find out if this person's hypothesis, which is this product's gonna do great in Thailand, we want to learn whether that's true. Then what do we need to measure? What do we need to build? It can be obviously an array of things depending on what's happening on the business. It can be digital channels, it can be relationships, and then you jump into that cycle. What we did is ended up doing a lot of custom analytics for our major clients or major clients of the bank. But using this method of validated learning really helped us step up our value that we were producing in the organization. And it took us directly to the customers and essentially sort of changed what we we're doing, took us out of frustration land. This is the sort of expanded version of a modern, modern ways of working, right? This is from Gartner and it has the lean startup build, measure, learn cycle in the middle. What it has before that is design thinking. So also design thinking is also something that's had a lot of hype, like becomes a buzzword. For some people they've done training and they like, I did some training and I sort of get it. And some other people, they haven't done training and it's kind of hazy. You know, you see these words like empathize, define, ideate, great. What does that mean? What is that? What, what, am, I, what am I doing what, as a result? What I found the most helpful in design thinking, well, the, the idea in general is to find problems that customers care about. That's what design thinking is about. And what I found the most helpful in terms of trying to deliver value with data science and with the cloud, what I found most helpful in looking at problems that the customers care about, I look for problems that they care so much about that they have a really terrible solution in place at the moment. And by really terrible, I mean something that if you look at it, you go, that's just put together with duct tape. If they have three Excel sheets that are each like 35 megs and they have to run them overnight just to get some information, that's terrible. That's a great place to start. So something that people care enough about and it's a problem big enough that they've done something about it as far as they can push it. Everyone has limited resources, limited knowledge, limited access to tools. If they care about this, they would have done something about it. And the further they take it, the more they care about it. So then if you come in and you go, hey, I wanna help you. What's giving you the most headache? And they go, hey, look at these spreadsheets, you know, they're huge. I can't do anything on my computer while it's running. This guy's fix it, try to fix it. This guy's start to fix it. You go, great, let's bring in some programming. Let's bring in some data science. Let's bring in some cloud. And that's how you, at least in my case, this is where how we got to defining problems that customers care about. And then with the lean startup, we usually build very small prototypes to test that we're adding value the right way. And then once we know that we've hit, that we're hitting the nail on the head, we scale and we do more of that using Agile. And I know that obviously um, NAB's been pushing Agile quite a lot too. Then this is my second point, stay close to the end customer, right? And in this case, this is me presenting to a large room of executives for an organization that we're trying to get as a client. Now the type of work that we're, the type of analytics that I was presenting, obviously it was done by the team, that was completely custom to that client, right? In terms of the data, the maps that we're showing, the metrics, et cetera, all completely custom. But the process of preparing something for the client, getting in front of them, getting some feedback, that we had done hundreds of times. And when we started, we literally started with the smallest clients, like lowest risk possible, where we got some data and we thought, hey, this literally little restaurant chain would like to know what we know about their customers, right? 
and this ties into one of my points later on. But we took this data, did some analysis for this really small client, and then we went and showed it to them. Obviously at the beginning, pretty rough, teeth in issues, questions we didn't have answers for, second meeting with a different client, same thing, third meeting with a different client, a little bit better, and then over time we sort of work out the, the bugs in the program, and we started going to see bigger and bigger clients. And then in this case, which is a few years down the road, this was uh, for ANZ's biggest deal in its history. Like ANZ is 180 years old, and by us doing this small iteration and improvement and staying close to the customer, we were lucky enough to be right in front and center in the biggest deal in ANZ history. So what I've got here is uh, data helps, because obviously you can see what the customers are doing. Predictive modeling helps, helps answer a lot of their questions, get direct contact with them, ideally many, many of them. And obviously that, this can be large organizations, it can be medium businesses, small businesses, and on the retail side, you can bring individuals to come and test your products or what you're building for them. And the idea there generally is you walk on the person, give them a chair, they have a phone or a computer and they try to use what you built and you say nothing and write down everything. So every time they're looking at, at your app or right, trying to work with your model, every time they look back at you, they go, hey, am I supposed to do this? You go, that's great, write it down. Because it means that as your app or your service scales, most people that work with it will have that same question. So then the feedback for the design, for the software team, for the data scientists is how can we change this so people don't have this question at this point in time. This is one of the realities, I guess, of um, working in data science, working on the cloud, bringing in all this change into old institutions. This is how they see us. They go, oh, you know data science? You're gonna automate my job. You're gonna get me out of here. A lot of the, co a lot of the talk in banking, right, is about cost cutting. So people think, okay, you can do algorithms. That means if I work with you and I tell you what I know, then I'm out, I'm gone. The real fear and what we found is like a real reluctance of people to wanting to work with us, especially as we automated some other processes, people were getting a bit afraid. We started getting sort of a bad reputation. We're trying to do good work. And then what we found that really helped is starting to bring people into the fold and start to educate them. We ended up launching like a miniature version, like a data university, where we had a couple of courses on data literacy, uh, statistics, a visualization, so people could start to do their own work. That's very related to this purpose of machine learning and AI, where I got this from a list that is the, it was the eight biggest myths about artificial intelligence. Number two is that companies are primarily interested in, in cost cutting, and that's why they're adopting AI. And I was like, of course, that's the main thing, isn't it? Like, yeah, you can do some cool stuff with AI. Yeah, whatever. Companies, they want to automate everyone. I was almost like the guys in the, in the slide before. So this was good to see that in terms of this is a survey of a few thousand large corporations. And what they're saying is 84% are, are investing in AI to get or maintain a competitive advantage. Then the second biggest one, it's around new business, new products, new services, new business lines. Third biggest is the competitor threat. Other people are going to do it. We should do it. We should do it better. Even for me, finding this, it was a really nice surprise. And what I wanted to, how, how we changed, and I guess what I wanted to tell you guys today is that we as data scientists, as cloud people, we understand what can be done with these technologies and we have to share that knowledge. We have to make, teach it to other people, as many people as you can. Even if it's in one-on-one, -on -one, in a small meeting, take the time to make it accessible to other people. So then 
you plus them can start thinking about these top three new products, new businesses, exciting stuff, right? Instead of just doing the automation stuff. These are three slides are all pretty closely linked in, uh, linked together. And so this one is machine learning for humans. The reason why I say that is because what I find is that the majority of the discussion around machine learning is on what essentially machines can do with it. When you think of autonomous cars, right? They go, great, the machine is going to learn some stuff from the data and then it's just gonna do it, great. And I find that the overwhelming majority of the applications in machine learning are around that. How do we get machines to just take care of it? There's a whole other side, which is just as important, just as big, which is machine learning for humans. What I mean by that is how can we use the outputs of machine learning to teach people how to think better? Show them where their biases are and how they can fix them. When we ask things like, what decision are you trying to make? Somebody comes in and asks you for data. Hey, can you send me data on you know, revenues for this product in, uh, broken down by state for the last year? You go, well, what are we trying to do? And then you take it to the business language and then you come up with a solution where you're both learning something and usually much better, much more valuable than instead of you being a data provider or a technology provider or somebody that can just get them out something up and running on the cloud. So. I have this algorithm here. This is a predictive model. Does anyone know what this model is called? I see some smiles over here, do you know? A decision tree. So decision tree is literally like one of the most basic predictive models and it gets a bad rap. Especially now in the age of like deep learning, huge neural nets, more data, more black boxes. People look down on trees in general, like random forest and boosted trees. And then out of all the tree family, the decision tree is like the worst of the worst. And yes, it has a little weaknesses in terms of it can be very variable if the data changes a little bit, like it's quite sensitive from that perspective. But that becomes a bigger issue if you're doing machine learning for machines. Because the huge benefit that it has is that when you're doing machine learning for humans, it tells you exactly what it's looking for. It tells you about the rules that it's, it's extracting from the data. So if you're trying to make a decision and then the machine tells you how it's making that decision, you can learn from that and you end up making, as a result, a better decision by this augmentation or learning from the machine. A really interesting thing happened in chess. I don't know if you guys, uh, followed it. Obviously in the, in the late 90s, I think it was 97, the first chess playing AI beat the world top player, grandmaster Gary Kasparov. Everyone's like, chess is over. Now it's all for the machines. And I thought that too, and I sort of tuned out actually for a few years because I was excited about the progress in computation. Then that happened and I was like, well, cool, time for the next challenge. I'll pay attention to the next one. And then when I got back in touch with it to see what was going on a few years later, turns out that there was the, the Deep Blue, which was the IBM AI playing chess. Other people created their own AI playing chess. They played against each other. It was a new golden area of chess. Chess never been seen before in the history of the world. Completely amazing, was blowing people away. I go, cool, that's kind of what I expected. Then a few years after that, turns out that there was a top player with his own AI playing chess, started beating just an AI. So human and AI together versus AI, Human was winning, obviously after learning a lot from how the, computer, the AIs were playing against each other. Then it started being AI, obviously completely custom, but AI plus human top level player versus AI and human top level player. New golden era of chess, amazing. That went on for a few years and then 
I think in the last about six or eight years, there's now teams of grandmasters, usually about four, with their own AI versus teams of grandmasters with their own AI. So there's this really symbiotic relationship now where they're learning from the machines, but in the end taking the decision themselves as a consensus. And that's now, or currently, the newest golden era of chess, right? Obviously it's a story that's not finished, but I really like that evolution because it's something that we can learn a lot from in terms of bringing that in. And obviously this example, the decision tree is trying to differentiate, pick what the, the fruits are based on their color and diameter. And in this case, it's the, using the Titanic data set, which is a free data set online. And it's showing, trying to predict who is going to survive the crash of the Titanic and who is going to die in the crash, right? And the reason why I like this example, not because it says all the guys are going to die. If you're an adult male that was in third class, then, then you're definitely gone, right? That's all why I like it. But the reason why I do is because it shows that at the end of the model, it gives you, it's partitioned the data and then it gives you a probability. So some of the things that we need to teach is that people, when they think of numbers, they think it's an exact science and there's one number. So we need to get them comfortable with thinking, no, in statistics, it's all about a range. It's all about a group. It's all about we apply these rules and then the data that we're left with, it's majority people who survive, like 93%, which means that of people of this group, 93% will survive. Which one? I don't know. But having that discussion when the problem arises to say, I don't know which one is going to survive, but I know that 93% of the people in this group will survive. When you're faced with a question and then you say, I don't know which one it is, you're already in the back foot. <laughs> Because generally your stakeholder goes, is asking because there's a business need that's sort of burning right there and then. So if you take a little bit of time to teach them ahead of time that it's statistics, it's about the group, there's confidence intervals, it makes these conversations uh, a lot easier. Like I, I had stakeholders, one of the guys in my team built a predictive model and I think it was like 77% accurate. And we're celebrating because the best we could get it before was like 68. So we're like, great, amazing. And then I remember having a discussion with the executive and they go, what? Like, 77? I thought like the predictive models were 99.5% accurate, which is impossible, like dreaming, right? But that's where a lot of people's expectations are in. This is another one of uh, huge learnings that we had. We took data or analysis to our institutional customers. We did analysis for them with data from retail, from a completely different division right? They were super interested. We went to speak to small and medium businesses with information from retail, super interested. And then we started doing it the other way around. What could we tell? And this is what like you get to get, go crazy a bit and, and get creative. What can we tell our small to medium business customers about what's happening with large institutions, about what's happening with retail customers? And at the beginning, we found it quite tough to do this cross-divisional sharing of, of knowledge and data. But the more we did it, the more value we were seeing. So I wanted to point it out as a really positive thing that really helped us and, and we hadn't thought about it. Then we have the using the flexibility of the cloud. And I emphasize flexibility because some of the approaches that ANZ took at the beginning, we were starting to dip our toe into the cloud. And then literally people said, we have to build one big data lake for all. I see somebody shaking their head. That's right. But literally what we did as an organization is spend a lot of time building the one to rule them all. Terrible, absolutely terrible. And there was no path for people to spin up and, and shut down their own services. You had to go through centralized teams. 
there was no play area, everything became high risk. It wasn't like, ah, oh, can I just get a couple servers and mess around for a bit? And then when we started getting, providing that, there was no um, clear progression on how something that we started to play with and got a bit of traction, how is that going to get to production eventually? What are the stage gates? What do we need to demonstrate in terms of either traction, customer engagement, profitability? What's the path for us to get to production? So these are pretty much like my, I would say, top five mistakes that I made during my time there, things that we ended up learning from and, and changing. So maximize learning, stay close to your end customer, machine learning for humans, use data from other divisions, other areas, mixing data always makes it better, use the flexibility of the cloud. I'll let you guys take a picture actually, because man, I hate it when I'm trying to take a picture of somebody's slides and then they change it. Come on. And I do have just one more thing, saying that I have like a minute left. I mentioned um, at the beginning, when we're about to go on this honeymoon, my wife goes, why don't you start this podcast, right? So it's called Data Futurology, and I interview chief data scientists, chief data officers, heads of data science, general managers of data science, and I get them to essentially tell all the listeners what are their mistakes in their career? What are their lessons learned? What do they wish that they knew as they were going up? So we get a lot of their journey, their backstory, their thinking, their approach to problems. And then we also cover things like what makes a great data scientist? How do you become a data science leader? How do I manage my team? What interesting applications of machine learning AI are you doing? How do you create a data strategy? Really good, interesting conversations, not that I'm biased. And, uh, and you can find it in, I think, about 15 different podcasting apps, definitely all the major ones. So in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, it's in Spotify. Podbean, I think, is one of them, but essentially, it's in about 15. If you do look for it and you don't find it, uh, let me know what app you use, and I'll make sure that uh, we upload it there as well. That's it from me. Uh, thanks so much for sticking around, and um, enjoy your weekend. Thank you. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.